I would not wish to issue an invitation to President Trump. Oh, snap. So much for that special relationship, I guess. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast. As heard on 90.7 FM, People Powered Radio in LA. Up in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast, 106.7 FM Queso in Cottage Grove. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 92.9 FM WLRI. In Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui. In Columbus, Ohio's G- WGRN 94.1 FM. And in Palinville, New York on 102.9 FM WLPP. And Minneapolis, St. Paul, the Twin Cities AM 950. KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. We're also heard streaming coast to coast and around the globe uh, by many fine streaming affiliates on the intertubes, including the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Detour Talk, Radio Monterey, and Radio Sputnik. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, boy, oh boy, uh, other than the results of the football game, <laughs> uh, Trump had a very bad weekend. Other than the results of that game where Trump's favored New England Patriots somehow ended up winning what the uh, what the nation's Dave Zirin correctly describes as the most gobsmacking, unfathomable comeback in Super Bowl history. Other than that, uh, those results, uh, you know, other than that, Trump can't have enjoyed being trolled by a whole bunch of Super Bowl ads from Coca-Cola's still moving i think it is still moving uh their america the beautiful ad uh in a bunch of different languages which for some reason leads to uh hashtags of boycott coke on the twitters um there was 84 lumbers very very cool and a very uh, new pro immigration ad that ended up crashing its website it's quite beautiful if you haven't seen the whole thing fox deemed the ending of the uh, 84 lumber ad to be just too political for air so you can go watch the whole thing for yourself at 84lumber.com if their website is back up after crashing from all the traffic on sunday night uh, there was Budweiser's immigration ad, which I thought was cool. Audi had a uh, they tackled gender equality and there were others. And that was just a football game. So uh, that may not have gone well for Trump over the weekend. Yes, it most certainly didn't. And 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 I know most people are not on Twitter, but I have to say, if you ever do get on Twitter, it is it is very fun to sort of get a rolling conversation of what is going on across America, depending on who you follow, of course. And and I think you're absolutely right. The content of the ads were were uniformly 
seemed to me mm-hmm. to be very, um, very not overtly anti-Trump, but definitely pointing out, hey, this is who we are as Americans, and that is not in line with what Trump has done. He probably got the message, uh, but then got distracted because his team ended up winning. Uh, so, uh, you know, clearly to both progressives and non-progressives, the the, the weekend uh, match, the football game, seems to have been much more than just a football game on its own, oddly enough. It seems to have become a proxy war a culture proxy war. yeah uh, for the currently you know disastrous and terrifying state of our politics versus those people and those uh, racists who uh, who support donald trump so how did that happen well we'll speak with progressive sports reporter lindsey gibbs about that shortly beyond that though it was a pretty rough weekend uh, for donald trump's barely two-week-old presidency Uh, Insider accounts of chaos and confusion in the White House just continue to pour forth uh, through the media, through AP, Washington Post, New York Times. This White House, there are people inside this White House who are screaming for whatever reason, uh, screaming to media, uh, mainstream corporate media like never before. Um, it's it's quite amazing. But aside from Trump's own folks inside the White House seemingly turning on him and turning to the media, he continues to be his own worst enemy, it seems, through the issuance of ill-conceived executive orders and ill-considered tweets. So uh, catching up from a late Friday night, shortly after we went off air, a federal judge appointed by George W. Bush blocked, at least for now, Trump's immigration and travel ban. And then very late on Saturday night, there was a federal appeals court that rejected the administration's desperate request to restore that ban uh, before the before at least the bad media that he was sure to get on Sunday morning. And I'm pretty sure that's why they went, why the administration went running to the appellate court. Oh, they late couldn't wait a, even a couple night. of. I mean, they went. They went as quickly as they could to file that. He's appeal. very aware of you know the Sunday shows that he watches, uh, and he wanted to win before uh, before Sunday morning. He did not get one on Sunday morning uh, after being uh, rejected by the court. Uh, Trump attacked the federal judge, referred to him as a so-called judge. That from so-called President Donald Trump. Uh, and he said that uh, that that judge would be blamed. It would be his fault if there was any terror attack. Uh, the, the tweets were amazing. Uh, first, uh, what was the first one? Uh, the opinion of this so-called judge, which essentially takes law enforcement away from our country, is ridiculous and will be overturned. Now, it could be overturned. We will find out. Uh, but no, it does not take law enforcement away from our country. He then went on to tweet, what is our country coming to when a judge can halt a homeland security travel ban and anyone with bad intentions can come into the U.S.? What is our country coming to? You mean that whole thing called the Constitution with separation of powers? Yeah. yeah. (laughs) But what's it coming to? It's coming to justice is what it's coming to. Homeland Security, this agency that did not even exist before 9-11, they should have complete say over the courts, over the Constitution, over anything else. And the idea that uh, anyone with bad intentions can come into the U.S., no, that's still not how it works. There is still a process for getting into this country. Whether you're, uh, you know, visiting with a visa or you're uh, attempting, you're a refugee attempting to immigrate here, 
Trump then went on to tweet, the judge opens up our country to potential terrorists and others that do that do not have our best interests at heart. Bad people are very happy. Exclamation. He tweets like a five year old. I, I, bad people and, and are no very insult happy. intended to five year olds. Yes, exactly. And then uh, finally, he said, just cannot believe a judge would put our country in such peril. If something happens, blame him and the court system. People pouring in. Bad! Exclamation. So, uh, the judge is not putting our country in peril. The judge is uh, simply continuing the status quo because it's been determined that these people would be irreparably harmed if Trump's order was put in place, at least until the merits of uh, of the executive order can be argued. So, no, they're not pouring in. Uh, They are not uh, in the country is not in any kind of peril, at least not in any more peril than it has been for years, whatever you might decide that to be. But much of that, of course, is is of Trump's own making Uh, this bad PR that he's getting these bad court decisions. It's of his own making because he, he didn't get his act together before issuing what is now referred to as a Muslim ban. Josh Rogan of Washington Post's uh, his account, and there there was about three or four of them this weekend from Washington uh, from White House insiders who are just singing about what the hell is going on in the White House. Uh, Rogan's Washington Post account of how uh, Trump's botched immigration order rolled out in the first place uh, that came out on Saturday, and it was based on accounts from at least two uh, top White House officials. It was kind of amazing. I'm going to read you part of this here because it was very disturbing, distur- stunning, actually. Um, and actually, one says not just disturbing, um, almost encouraging on one level. I'll get to that, though. Over the weekend of January 28th through 29, as airport protests raged over Trump's executive order on immigration. So this would have been a, a week ago, a little over a week ago. Uh, As that was happening, the man charged with implementing the order, Homeland Security Secretary John Kelly, had a plan. He would issue a waiver for lawful permanent residents, a.k.a. green card holders from the seven majority Muslim countries whose citizens had been banned from entering the United States by that order. So that was Kelly's plan to uh, put things at rest. The idea that these green card uh, holders could not get back in if they had lived here for years and years and they left to visit family and they couldn't get back in. They would be exempt from this order uh, under Kelly's plan because it wasn't spelled out in the homeland in the uh, executive order because Trump didn't bother to vet it with his people first. So that was what Kelly wanted to do. But then White House chief strategist Steve Bannon wanted to stop Kelly in his tracks from from uh, exempting green card holders. He told him not to issue the order to exempt people who had green cards, permanent lawful residents. Kelly, according to two administration officials with the confront uh, familiar with the confrontation, refused to comply with Bannon's order. Bannon Apparently is Bannon, the the top political guy for Donald Trump, is apparently telling the top Department of Homeland Security guy a cabinet level position what he should and shouldn't do. The disagreement between Bannon and Kelly, uh, Washington Post reports, pitted a political operator against a military disciplinarian. Two administration officials gave the following account of their exchange. 
respectfully but firmly, the retired general, that's Kelly, told Bannon that despite his high position in the White House and close relationship with the president, the former Breitbart chief was not in Kelly's chain of command. If the president wanted Kelly to back off from issuing this waiver for uh, green card holders, Kelly said he would have to hear it from the president directly. That's what he told Bannon. And apparently Trump did not call Kelly to tell him to hold off. So Kelly issued the waiver late Saturday night. He went out about 10 p.m. at night, gave this uh, statement to the press saying that uh, people with green cards would would be exempt from the order, although uh, it was not uh, officially announced until the following day. But that did not apparently end the dispute at 2 a.m. on Sunday, according to two different officials, says Rogan, a, a conference call of top officials was convened. They're convening conference calls at 2 a.m. to figure out how to handle this mess that they created, this unforced error that they created. A 2 a.m. conference call convened to discuss the confusion and the uh, over the executive order, the anger from cabinet officials over their lack of inclusion in the process in the first place. On the call, according to Rogan, uh, and these uh, officials who are singing from the White House were uh, Steve Miller, who's the senior policy advisor, um, and uh, White House counsel Donald McGahn, national security advisor Michael Flynn, General Kelly, uh, Defense Secretary Jim Mattis, and a senior State Department official representing uh, now Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, who had not yet been confirmed. One White House official and one administration official told me that the cabinet officials presented a united front, says Rogan. They complained about the process that led to the issuance. He had all these cabinet members squaring off against all of these political people in the White House. And uh, focusing on what uh, is described as the near complete lack of consultation with those cabinet members, uh, and they were complaining about the White House's reluctance to make what they saw as common sense revisions to this order to, for example, exempt green card holders. Even Michael Flynn, crazy Michael Flynn, the national security advisor, uh, according to the White House official, uh, partially sided with the cabinet officials, arguing that they should be included in the process, even if the White House ultimately decided not to adopt their recommendations. It's amazing that a case has to have been made that cabinet officials should be included uh, in the process for developing <laughs> executive orders before they're issued. Uh, so meanwhile, back now to Trump's rough weekend this past weekend. Um, late on Sunday, late Sunday night, 97 companies now, huge corporations have filed an amicus or a friend of the court brief against Trump's immigration ban in court. The, uh, the companies include Apple, Facebook, Google, Netflix, Twitter, Microsoft, 91 other companies signed on to the brief charging the quote, American workers in the economy will suffer as a result of the of this executive order. The document on uh, on Sunday was filed to the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals in San Francisco. It emphasizes the value of immigrants to business and society. It credits them with making some of the nation's greatest discoveries, creating among the uh, the most innovative and iconic companies in the United States. So that was Sunday night. And then on Monday morning, <laughs> 
things continue to get worse. Trump's executive order curtailing immigration, quote, could do long term damage to the United States national security and foreign policy interests, endangering troops and intelligence agents and disrupting efforts to prevent terror attacks. That, according to 10 former senior U.S. diplomats and security officials on Monday in another court document. The affidavit was written uh, jointly by two former secretaries of state, two former heads of the CIA, a former secretary of defense, a former secretary of Homeland Security and senior officials at the National Security Council. They all slammed Trump's order as, quote, ill conceived, poorly implemented and ill explained, according to NBC News. The co-authors wrote in the filing, quote, this order cannot be justified on national security or foreign policy grounds. It does not perform its declared task of protecting the nation from foreign terrorists entry into the United States. The co-authors included former Secretary of State John Kerry, former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, former Homeland Security Chief, I think, uh, Janet Napolitano. Susan Rice, former U.N. ambassador, Leon Panetta, former head of the CIA, John McLaughlin, Avril Haines, Michael Hayden, Lisa Monaco and Michael Morell. They are mostly Democrats, notes Andrea Mitchell at NBC, but notably Hayden is a retired U.S. Air Force four star general. He served as the director of the CIA under George W. Bush. He signed on to this uh, amicus brief as did McLaughlin, who served as the deputy director of the CIA under uh, both President Clinton and President Bush, George W. Bush. The former officials urged the U.S. Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals not to reinstate the, uh, the ban while they decide whether the president has the legal or constitutional authority to even issue such a sweeping order. NBC notes that the filing is notable not because of the novelty of the former intelligence officials' arguments, but because they give the case against Trump's entry ban uh, a national security credential that many of its other opponents cannot. So this is national security people arguing this is going to do long-term damage. This is going to make the the United States less safe if this ban is allowed to stay in place. Trump's Justice Department has argued that the uh, that the judges that that no judge basically could make an appropriate determination of the effectiveness of Trump's ban in order to protect national security without the advantage of national security clearance. In other words, the judge can't make this decision. Only the Trump administration knows how uh, important this is based on their their security clearances and their briefings. However, four of the uh, of the 10 officials who filed this or former officials who filed this amicus brief today, Kerry, Haynes, Monaco and Rice, they all told the court that they were current on active intelligence regarding all credible terrorist threats uh, that are against the U.S., at least as recently as one week before Donald Trump's order. Now, if uh, something has changed in that week, I guess Trump is going to make the case. But otherwise, all of these officials, they are up to date on the threats facing the U.S. And they all say they tell the judge, uh, no, this will not make us more safe. This will make us less safe. The former intel uh, officers argue that Trump's entry ban misses its intended target. 
which would be potential terrorist. They write, since September 11, 2001, not a single terrorist attack in the U.S. has been perpetrated by aliens from the countries named in the order. Very few attacks on U.S. soil since September 11, 2001 have been traced to foreign nationals at all, unquote, and none of them from these seven countries that are included in this ban. The former officials argue that the entry ban, if allowed to continue, would compromise U.S. national security and by immediately placing American troops fighting alongside soldiers from the affected countries in harm's way. So those are officials, uh, former uh, intelligence officials, making the case. And then you have this from John Yu in the New York Times. Do you, uh, you remember who John Yu is? Desi oh, I, I remember who John Yu is. A lot of people don't know him. Uh, so just a reminder, he's a Republican lawyer. He is best known for authoring the torture memos under George W. Bush that legally justified Bush's use of torture against terror suspects in 2002, arguing in, in, in those memos uh, justifying Bush's sweeping interpretation of executive power. He said that basically the president can do anything he wants because he's the president. And it's wartime, so it's okay. Exactly. So, and John Yu, he, he allowed the Bush-led uh, CIA to detain suspects, some of whom turned out to be innocent. And he gave the justi uh, justification to do that without trial and with torture if they wanted to. Techniques ranging from waterboarding, well, to some stuff that I'm not even going to say on air because it makes me uncomfortable to even talk about. But it's really, really bad. So that guy. That guy. Uh, and all of these practices, by the way, uh, when when uh, Barack Obama came to office, he put an end to these practices within days of taking office. So that guy, John Yu, even John Yu is arguing that Donald Trump has just gone too far. In a New York Times op-ed today, Yu argues that despite his support for torture under the Bush administration uh, and other executive uh, war actions by Bush, he said, quote, even I have grave concerns about Mr. Trump's use of pre presidential power. So even he knows it's outrageous that he, of all people, is saying Trump has gone too far. Among the things that uh, he takes aim at uh, in among the executive orders issued to date by Trump, uh, take his order to build a wall along the border with Mexico and his suggestion that he will tax Mexican imports or currency transfers to pay for it. The president has no constitutional authority over border control, says you, which the Supreme Court has long found rests in the hands of Congress, not the president. Under Article One of the Constitution, writes you, only Congress can fund the construction of a wall, a fence, or even a walking path along the border. And the president cannot slap a tax or tariff on Mexican imports without Congress, writes you. Nor can Mr. Trump pull the United States out of NAFTA because Congress made the deal with Mexico and Canada by statute. Presidents have no authority to cancel tariff and trade laws unilaterally. John Yu goes on to note that even though his executive order halting immigration from several Muslim nations makes for bad policy, I believe it falls within the law. That one he says he could do. But after the order was issued, his advisor Rudy Giuliani disclosed that uh, Trump had initially asked for a Muslim ban 
In which case, that would, he says, most likely violate the Constitution's protection for freedom of religion or its, prohib- uh, its prohibition on the state establishment of religion or both. No mean feat, writes John Yu, torture lawyer John Yu. Again, that's uh, one of the uh, that's Bush's top guy when it came to justifying these extreme executive actions by George W. Bush. And even he argues that Donald Trump has gone too far when you've lost John. You no kidding. All right. One more before we get to our our break here. Uh, This one came in just before airtime. I think we'll have time for this. Uh, Trump has been invited to, as you probably know, to make a state visit to uh, to the U.K., the U.S.'s top ally uh, sometime in the coming months. He was invited by Prime Minister Theresa May, but it looks like he may not be uh, receiving an invitation to address a joint session of the British Parliament, which is customary in these sorts of visits. John Burkow, the Speaker of the House of Commons, he's a member of the Conservative Party in, in uh, Great Britain, or at least he was before becoming Speaker. The uh, Speaker of the House of Commons apparently is supposed to be apolitical. So he, yes. le- he, he, he left the, the Conservative Party as he became uh, Speaker. On Monday evening, he took what is described as the rare step of publicly announcing that he opposes inviting Trump to address Parliament in the wake of this uh, international outcry over Trump's Muslim travel ban. I would not wish to issue an invitation to President Trump to speak in the Royal Gallery. And I conclude by saying to the Honourable Gentleman this. We value our relationship with the United States. If a state visit takes place, that is way beyond and above the pay grade of the Speaker. However, as far as this place is concerned, I feel very strongly that our opposition to racism and to sexism and our support for equality before the law and an independent judiciary are hugely important considerations in the House of Commons. Point of order, Mr. Skinner. Further to that point of order, two words, well done. Wow. Wow. So he's lost the House of Commons. So aside from tens of thousands of people protesting across the country, across the world, you got now members of Trump's own White House have problems with uh, with his executive orders. Former top military and intelligence officials have serious concerns about his orders. The author of George W. Bush's torture memos has grave concerns about these orders. The conservative speaker of the U.K. House of Commons is against Trump speaking there based on the order and based on his comments. Uh, and now even major corporations, that's the one that's got to hurt the most for Donald Trump. Major corporations, many of whom could face direct retribution from Trump and his tweets and his policies. They they haven't shied away either from standing up against Trump's Muslim exclusion order and what Trump is doing in general. We'll talk about a few of those corporations and what they're doing, some of whom seem to be standing up to Trump now in a very big way in court and on TV during the Super Bowl on Sunday. That's next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. (laughs) 
Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. Oh, beautiful for spacious skies Por tus olas de granos tambar Yo pichinatzakote Soy babao na mga brutas Oh, boy. America, America Coca-Cola Causing trouble again at the Super Bowl. Thank you, Coca-Cola. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Yeah, go ahead. We'll play through. Incredibly, you can hear the wingnut uh, heads exploding from here for uh, simply playing uh, uh, America the Beautiful uh, in all of those different languages uh, during the Super Bowl, which was originally, I think, that ad aired back in 2014. It aired again on Sunday night at the Super Bowl. Writing over at The Nation today, uh, Dave Zirin, host of the Edge of Sports podcast, uh, writes, The New England Patriots won the Super Bowl 34-28 to in the most gobsmacking, unfathomable comeback in Super Bowl history. Down 28-3, they came all the way back to win in overtime. That will mean joy in the White House, writes Zirin, as Donald Trump's favorite team was victorious and also... Joy for Patriots tight end Martellus Bennett, who confirmed that he would not be joining the team upon their inevitable White House visit because of the man inhabiting the White House. But there was something else thrumming beneath the surface of this game, writes Zyron. Something uh, far more meaningful than which than which billionaire ended up hoisting the Lombardi trophy. It was something in the anthems. Something in the commercials, something in the way people were watching the action. Zyron goes on to describe some of the uh, some of those anthems and some of those commercials and what wasn't seen at all during the Fox Network's broadcast for some reason of the 51st Super Bowl. Massive protests in Houston. Outside the stadium, Houston saw a weekend of protests, he says, culminating in the participation of more than 1,000 people in a Sunday march, march that stretched over one half of a mile. It was for black lives and against the Muslim ban and decidedly against the aims of this White House. That's what happens when the Super Bowl is staged in a city that takes in more refugees than anywhere in the United States, writes Zyron. Over at Think Progress, sports reporter Lindsey Gibbs offered some similar observations. She writes, For many progressives outside of New England, the game felt like another win for racism and bigotry and, well, the version of America that Trump has so brazenly amplified and empowered. But, she says, while there are striking parallels on the surface, staring too deeply into the abyss is both dangerous and unproductive. After all, when you look at the bigger picture... 
There were plenty of victories for progressive values on Sunday evening as well. Here to discuss perhaps some of those victories uh, and how it is that this game and really now Super Bowls in general have like seemingly just become like everything else in our society, just incredibly politicized is Lindsey Graham, sports report, Lindsey Gibbs, I'm sorry, sports reporter over at Think Progress. Lindsey, welcome to the broadcast. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, apologies for botching your name already. No problem. Uh, listen, before everything else, uh, setting policy, politics aside, if that's even possible anymore, Lindsay, uh, it was, in truth, it was a pretty amazing game. Uh, and in simpler times, I suppose, a lot, a lot more people would have really enjoyed that game uh, for all kinds of reasons, including some pretty incredible performances by both teams, no? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it was definitely a tale of two halves. You had the underdog Atlanta Falcons come out really strong to start the game and really just take the Patriots by storm. And then... Um, that set the stage for what was the by far the biggest comeback in Super Bowl history, which culminated in um, the Patriots winning on the first drive in overtime. It was the first overtime Super Bowl. So, yeah, a lot of on-the-field excitement for sure. Yeah, it, it, it would have been a good game, but then you got all of this politics laid on top of it. Uh, Ziren, uh, I'm sorry, Zirin's piece over at the uh, at the Nation was headlined: "Political fervor thrums beneath the Super Bowl's surface." Yours at Think Progress, the Super Bowl had more for progressives to love than you might realize. Okay, uh, I'll bite. What uh, what what did you find most to love uh, for progressives in that game yesterday, Lindsay? Well, you know, when I talk about the Super Bowl, I don't just mean the game itself. You know, when we refer to the Super Bowl, we refer to the whole, you know, Super Bowl entertainment mm-hmm. complex, you know, the commercials and the halftime show. Mm-hmm. And really, I mean, like a lot of people, I was, you know, got to the point where I was, you know, we associate the Patriots with Trump so much because uh, Tom Brady and Bill Pelichek, the coach and um, quarterback, of course, of the mm-hmm. Patriots, and then their owner, Bob Kraft, are all good friends of Trump. So it's really easy to associate the Patriots with Trump, and that's an, a, it's an association they have well earned. And so to see them kind of come back in this epic fashion, and if you look at the um, the statistics during the game, actually really mirrored kind of some of the election day statistics. Mm-hmm. For one point, Atlanta uh, had a ninety about a ninety percent chance of winning. You know, right. and then you saw that swing. So there was a lot of on social media. I think a lot of us were were feeling similar feelings to what we felt uh, the night watching the election of kind of, you know, having your hopes up, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, you know, you see this dash. But what I wanted to look at is really, you know, the parallels are pretty are pretty surface for, between this and election mm-hmm. night. I mean, on the field, honestly, the Patriots won because they were the better team, because they are more experienced, they're uh, super hardworking, they're very talented, they know what they're doing on this stage, and it really showed at mm-hmm. the end. And um, everything else about the Super Bowl, a lot of the other, I mean, I was really struck by the fact that you played the ads at the start of this segment. Mm-hmm. There were some really progressive messages mm-hmm. about uh, unity, about diversity, mm-hmm. about inclusion, um, about the positive aspects of immigration, and about how we should be welcoming immigrants into this country. There's even one for equal pay. I'm used to watching Super Bowls where the ads are filled with sexism. And yeah, some, yeah. And, you know, and some racism and misogyny. So I thought it was actually really interesting and really notable for the fact that there were these progressive messages throughout the Super Bowl, as if the people who, 
you know, were, were pre-planning their Super Bowl messages, you know, who weren't determining their messages the night of, like through the game, we're, we're, we're making a stance about what this country really believes in, and we're kind of speaking against this, this Trumpism that we're, we're facing right now. And, uh, yeah, and I want to talk, which is kind of incredible for these big corporations to do that. I want to talk about that in a, in a, in a moment, but specifically, I want to make sure uh, the, the ad, and you run it in your article for 84lumber.com. For those who didn't get to see the whole thing, uh, since Fox apparently would not allow the uh, what, what had been planned to be the ending of this commercial, um, I watched the whole thing, the five-minute version uh, last night. I thought it was beautiful. Uh, and, so and beautiful. Yeah, breathtaking. Can, can you sort of uh, describe that ad for people who may not have seen it or who may not have seen the ending? Spoiler alert, we may give away the ending here uh, <laughs> from the 84lumber.com ad. Absolutely. Yes, it was about a mother and her daughter um, doing the dangerous trek, the long trek through the desert to um, come to the United States uh, in Mexico. So, um, you know, they were on trains and they were getting rides from people and they were walking across the desert. And throughout their trip, the daughter was collecting um, fabrics Mm -hmm. and little scraps from their journey. And they... uh, when they reach the border, and this is the part that wasn't shown, mm-hmm. when they finally get to the border, there's the wall. There's a giant wall there. And what we end up seeing in the commercial at the end is that they end up finding a door through that wall. And the little girl has taken these scraps that she's found from their journey and made a little American flag with it. So it's a really beautiful story of um, mm-hmm. perseverance and of hope and of kind of what America is supposed to be about. But, of course, it got turned into an endorsement of, um, you know, what people call illegal immigration. And, you know, mm-hmm. um, it got turned into a very negative political stance when really I think it was it was just kind of supposed to be a beautiful portrayal of what this company's kind of version of America is. How did, uh, and, and it is, and people can see the whole thing uh, both at uh, Lindsay's article uh, at Think Progress and uh, just search for lumber 80, uh, 84lumber.com. I think it's probably pretty easy to see, presuming their website is still up. It actually crashed from the traffic uh, last night. So uh, is there more going on here, uh, Lindsay Gibbs, than the uh, than than Trump's friendship with Brady and Belichick and and the team's owner and so forth? Um, actually, let me put it this way: Help me out here. There, there's sort of this pretend notion, I think, that the Super Bowl. Oh, it's one of those few things left in the nation that brings everyone together. We all watch it together at the same time. It's a non-political event. It's a sports contest, for crying out loud, you know, between two American teams. But in truth, the Super Bowl has been politicized, really, for some time. And I don't mean that in a negative way, uh, necessarily. But it doesn't seem to me that it was it was progressives who done it when it comes to the politicization for years. I mean, at least since 9-11, if not earlier, the NFL has been closely partnering with the Defense Department. Uh, and, and there's there's always been a very politicized flavor to the game, at least for some time. No. Are, are you able to figure out when when that actually began, Lindsay? You know, I don't know when, you know, this this switch flipped, although I think definitely, you know, 9-11, when as a country we took a more nationalistic and kind of patriotic, Mm -hmm. you know, view of things, patriotism turned into something more 
of a weapon. Or, I mean, I think to some people it kind of always was that way. But I think that I think that sports are always political because of the things that we consider political these days, right? Or have always considered political. It's not political in the way that we're, you know, we're deciding policies on the field or we're, you know, talking, breaking down the Affordable Care Act, but it's political in the fact that you have a lot of different races, a lot of different backgrounds Mm. um, on the field. You have a very intense hierarchy. You have the owners who are making billions of dollars and you have the players on the field, majority of them African-American, who are really putting their bodies at risk, their brains at risk. Mm-hmm. Um, you have the commercialization of all of this. And in, of course, in college sports, then you have the fact that the athletes aren't paid, you know, and people are making millions around them. In the pros, they are paid. But I mean, in the NFL, a lot of these contracts aren't guaranteed. I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're in danger. It's not, it's not this glorious uh, thing. So all of these are are political topics, and you can't, um, there's no way to, uh, for me, and of course I write full-time about sports and politics, so I'm, mm-hmm. I'm biased and I know right. I see it more, but, but these are, you know, political things, and I do think sports is a great way to talk about these things and a great way to talk about them because we are all kind of speaking the same language when we're talking about a sport. You know, it puts us on a less, you know, in some versions, a less uh, intense um, playing field than, mm. you know, a Senate vote or something like that, mm. you know, or a political election. So I think all these topics are always at play, but with Trump, everything is political these days, you know. I mean, there's there's no escaping our reality right now, nor really should there be, you know. I, I, yeah, I do know. I wish that wasn't <laughs> true, but uh, I know. But, uh, but I know. I mean, you're right. Everything. I'm a lot of fun at parties. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I mean, yes, because everything, everything seems to uh, be uh, politicized now. And, you know, this is certainly not the the, the, the fault of the progressive. I mean, you, you note uh, neo-Nazi uh, Richard Spencer. He's the guy who takes credit for creating the the phrase alt-right. He tweeted a photo of, uh, of Tom Brady kissing his wife after the game, along with the caption, for the white race, it's never <laughs> over. And I think he referred to uh, the Patriots as the whitest team in the in the NFL. So it, this is well, it's not just progressives politicizing this. this no, is no, everyone. no, no. Every everyone sees what they want to see, you know. And we all kind of see our issues play out in in different ways. And I think that's kind of the fascinating thing when you look at the sports sports landscape and how. You know, people can watch the same game and get such very different stories out of it. And uh, yeah, speaking of of seeing what they want to see, uh, this year, the this year's just seemed very, very different than previous years. Even though it wasn't all overt, you had uh, performances mm-hmm. like Lady Gaga's at the halftime, uh, which was not necessarily overtly political, but boy, it sure did seem somehow. Uh, even beyond the uh, what you say, America the Beautiful, and this land is is your land. Even beyond that, is was it just me? It seemed like a big middle finger somehow that she was yeah. raising throughout the entire performance. Am I reading too much? Am I just seeing what I wanted to see there, Lindsay? Well, I think you know I've got to give credit to our culture writer Jessica Goldstein, who wrote a piece today on on Lady Gaga and kind of said these days, like even saying stuff like America is beautiful is seen as kind of a politically charged statement against, Mm -hmm. you know, against the kind of America that Trump is painting. So we've reached a point where, first of all, I think we're all looking for answers right now, right? Like, this is a really confusing time, and we're all kind of looking for messages or guidance 
um, on how best to kind of respond or how we should be responding or what all this means in all of our media, you know, and from all of our friends. We just, Mm -hmm. somebody break this down for me, you know, and just kind of like tell me what to do (laughs) and tell me what to feel. And so I think in that way, you do look at things like, uh, you know, Lady Gaga singing about LGBT rights, even though that's one of her biggest hits, and of Mm -hmm. course she's going to sing that song, but it takes on a different meaning when you have a White House that's looking to strip away LGBT rights, right? Like, mm-hmm. that's, that's, that's much more subversive than it would have been a year ago under the Obama administration. Um, so things do take on a different meaning, and I think that's understandable that we would see different things. But I was very, it was very interesting, though, because a lot of the, my progressive circle, which is the majority of my circle these days, uh, mm-hmm. where I work and in D.C., you know, did see some political statements in Gaga's performance. But some of my conservative friends on Facebook, I'm from North Carolina and still, you know, have a lot of connections to that. They were thanking her for not being political, you know. <laughs> for them, that was a version that they could pretend wasn't political. And I thought that was very interesting. Well, that is. And and it does support the idea that we want to see what we want to see. But then, the, you know, some of it was obviously very overt. Uh, Dave Zirin uh, notes there was uh, even a hair product commercial that started with the statement, we are in for four years of bad hair. <laughs> yes, that was great. And, and he, yeah, it really was. He said this is uh, might very well be seen as an effort to commodify dissent. He said, but it is stunning that the suits of Madison Avenue after years of erectile dysfunction and sexist GoDaddy.com ads, as, as you point out, Lindsay, uh, feel something in the air that they can, that they yearn to commodify. It's amazing, he says, that you know, that whatever's going on is reaching Madison Avenue enough that they feel like, hey, there's something here that we can make money from, I guess. Uh, Can we take something from that? I mean, these are our, after all, big corporations that Trump has shown no problem with, you know, attacking, holding a grudge against. Does it say something that even they are willing to join overt dissent against uh, Donald Trump, even if it's just to make a buck in the bargain? Oh, absolutely. And that, that was, you know, kind of what I was writing about was the fact that the fact that all these ads were so, you know, were touting these progressive values or were openly mocking Trump does say that right now this is what, com- like, companies think that pr- that inclusiveness sells. And that's that's important because... Trump, all he pretty much talks about caring about is the economy and what sells, you know. And so you wonder if that will ultimately kind of be the the ultimate resistance, the resistance that works, mm-hmm. right, against him. Um, but you also have the fact that, and I thought, you know, I can't take uh, credit for this, Jeff Guerin, a, a mm-hmm. um, pollster, wrote on Twitter about the fact that, you know, Clinton won the parts of America that generate 64% of the country's economic activity. Mm-hmm. And so the progressives still have the buying power nationally in that way. And I think that's that's important to note. 64% uh, the, uh, the economy is included in the, uh, two, what is it, about 2,600 or... or or no, actually, less than 500 counties that Clinton won nationwide right. combined to generate 64% of America's economic activity. Uh, and the, the counties that Trump won, uh, more than 2,000, generate just 36% of the country's economic activity. And if anything, uh, good or bad, that you think about these huge corporations, they can read these numbers. They can read right, these bottom yeah. lines. <laughs> 
uh, Lindsay, I just want to close here with 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 a segment of um, of what you wrote in in your piece uh, that I think is is of note here. Uh, I, I felt it necessary to note that the depressed progressives I wa- I was watching the game with yesterday. I said at the end of the game, uh, Lindsay, that the New England Patriots are not Donald Trump. The right, game yeah. was not in reality. <laughs> Uh, you know, as, as much as some on both political uh, sides of the aisle have made this, it's not really about our nation's politics. And your article <laughs> concludes similarly. You say, after all, the Patriots were the favorites going into this game. Ultimately, it's their talent and experience that led them to victory, not bigotry and bluster. They won because they have the best quarterback and coach, likely in NFL history. We need to stop reading more into it than that. After all, conflating reality and entertainment might just be what got us into this mess to begin with. Nailed it, Lindsay Gibbs. Uh, and I'll, I'll go back to, I mean, talking about conflating reality and entertainment. Trump actually tweeted during the Super Bowl last year, he tweeted, the football is boring, politics is much more interesting. And so that's kind of going back to that notion where to him this has all been this entertainment, this smoke show, you know? Yep. And so we need to now, we have to be the ones to differentiate. And I'm not saying don't enjoy the Super Bowl or don't mm-hmm. have emotions of the Super Bowl. I love sports, absolutely, right? But, but, real, but don't, don't conflate it too much with, you know, what's happening in the White House right now. We need to keep that in mind when it comes to football, when it comes to the Super Bowl, when when it comes to just about everything these days. Uh, Lindsay, really appreciate your insight here and uh, and joining us uh, here at the last minute to to talk about this. Um, Because, boy, what a game, what a surprise, and what a bizarre parallel to real life. But it's only a parallel. It's not actually real life. Uh, So I think that's a worthy reminder. Uh, Thank you, Lindsay. You can check out uh, her article at Think Progress. She's the sports reporter at thinkprogress.org. And you can find her and uh, harass her and uh, do whatever you uh, might do to somebody you want to boycott. Because apparently that's what we all do now. We just boycott (laughs) Coke uh, on the Twitters. You can find her at Lynn Z, that's L-I-N-Z, sports. Thanks for joining us today, Lindsay. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. All right, a quick break, and we're back with more Bradcast. Running late. Uh, we'll be back in a second. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. Given the outcome of the 2016 election, we really need your support now more than ever. Progressive media outlets have been under attack for years, even during supposedly progressive administrations. We are now facing a whole new world and real alternatives to the mainstream corporate media. You know, the folks who got it all wrong from the jump must be able to continue the fight for all of us. This is not a drill. It never was. Please consider a donation to our work here on the Bradcast by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate to help out however you can. A monthly pledge is greatly appreciated, but anything you can share will keep us going. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance, now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Nobody told me that well, we did. Nobody told me that these like these. Yes, we told you. Nobody told-
Strange days indeed. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Yeah, we did tell you there would be days like this, especially up in the Arctic. I want to hit this if I have a, a, a quick minute here or two, Des. But you had a, a thought on uh, on the Super Bowl. Yes, and, and on, on with, what uh, Lindsay, Lindsay Gibbs yeah. had. I, I think that there is actually a broader shift going on. This is the first time in any of the Super Bowls that I've ever watched where so many of the commercials were so overtly trying to assert cultural values, American cultural values of multiculture, diversity, uh, justice, social justice. I mean, we, we noticed that there were rainbow flags in nearly every single commercial, it, even those that didn't have even a message about multiculturalism. Right. They were dropping in that uh, that subtle message, the girl flying a, a rainbow kite. Yeah, or just whatever. out of yeah. nowhere, just sort of in the yep. background there. And I think that this speaks to a very big shift that the major advertising corporations and their clients, the major corporations themselves, are are seeing that, hey, you know, the majority of Americans voted for Hillary mm-hmm. Clinton or did not vote for Donald Trump, I mm-hmm. should say. And that they're saying, hey, this is something that we want to spend millions of dollars on to make sure that we promote this. That's a big shift. A big shift. Well, speaking of big shifts, <laughs> see how I did that? Yes. Uh, the Arctic now is so warm and has been this warm for so long that scientists are struggling to explain it and are in disbelief, according to Washington Post. Now, we've been reporting on this, and I just want to get this in, because with all of this craziness, all of this madness going on with Donald Trump, one of the greatest reasons we warned you about uh, Donald Trump and the the possibility of him actually winning this election was because we are at such a crucial moment when it comes to the survival of humanity on this planet. And in uh, all throughout November and December, we kept telling you about the, 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 the temperatures in the Arctic that were not just a little warmer, not just, you know, two degrees here, four degrees were 20 to 30 degrees warmer than they were supposed to be. That was, you know, late last year. Well, that continues now. 2016 was the warmest year on record in the Arctic. 2017 is now picking up exactly where it left off. Temperatures are far warmer than ever observed in modern records, according to scientists. And the sea ice extent, that's essentially how much sea ice there is, Uh, The extent is now setting new record lows. The climate of the Arctic is known to oscillate wildly, according to uh, Jason Samenow at uh, at Washington Post. He's a meteorologist there. Um, So we expect changes in the Arctic patterns. But scientists say that this warm right now, this warmth that's going on right now is so extreme that humans surely have their hands in it and may well be changing how 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 it operates changing what used to be the natural variability of weather is now being affected by by man well sure when you take a large global feature like millions of acres millions of miles of sea ice and then you get rid of it mm-hmm. that is going to have an impact on weather patterns and on a whole lot of other stuff Mark Ceres, director of the National Snow and Ice Data Center in Boulder, Colorado, said uh, after studying the Arctic and its climate for three and a half decades, I have concluded that what has happened over the last year goes beyond even the extreme. At the North Pole, the mercury has rocketed to near the melting point twice since November. 
and another huge flux of warmth is projected by models this week. Uh, the simulations predict some places in the Arctic will, will rise over 50 degrees above the normal temperatures for this time of year. 50 degrees. So we were talking about 20 to 30 degrees. Now we're looking at 50 degrees warmer in the Arctic. There is one chart in particular that uh, is apparently gobsmacking uh, to scientists. Uh, it illustrates the difference from from normal in the number of freezing degree days, a measure of the accumulated cold since September. The number of freezing degree days is far lower than any other period on record. Eric Holthouse, uh, the meteorologist and science writer, uh, uh, first posted this chart on Twitter, said it illustrates, quote, a stunning lack of freezing power over the Arctic. This is happening now, he writes, quote, not in 50 or 100 years now. David Titley, a professor of meteorology at Penn State and, uh, and an Arctic climate expert, said that this is another smoking gun pointing to rapid rapid climate change. Jason Furtado, a professor of meteorology at the University of Oklahoma, called the chart a, quote, incredible depiction of the Arctic warmth. While the magnitude of the Arctic warmth is extraordinary in and of itself, the duration of the warmth has been astounding. This is going on and on and on uh, with no change in sight right now in the Arctic going on now. This is the stuff they had predicted, what, 50 to 100 years from now. Yes, it's happening, but it's happening way, way now. faster than than anyone had previously predicted. Yes. And it's not getting out there. The news is not getting out there. The warnings are not getting out there. We're all so distracted and understandably so. With, uh, you know, President Manboy and, you know, what he's tweeting and what he's doing and what's going on and the response to it. Uh, meanwhile, as you like to say, Desi Doyen, uh, the, the, what do you say? The, the, the climate has no politics. Yes, the, the planet the, has no politics. Right. Physics does not care what your political party is. Physics is physics. It's going to happen. You cannot fix or change that. All you can do is change what we're doing in yep. order to uh, what we're doing more in alignment with physics. The uh, and and it is changing the outlook. How, however, of some uh, climate, what are the climate skeptics? Is yes. what they yeah, that's the preferred term over at Washington Post. Uh, the the human influence on climate in the Arctic may be redefining the natural vari variability of the climate, according to Chip Knappenberger, a climate scientist at the Cato Institute, the right wing Cato Institute. Natural variability is itself becoming increasingly non-natural, he says. Such a statement is notable coming from Knappenberger, who uh, considers himself a climate change skeptic. He says that uh, what's going on uh, suggests that uh, influences are shaped by anthropogenic activities. Yes, that would be man-made activities that climate deniers like Knappenberger uh, have been ignoring and saying, hey, it's not happening That's for a years. Shift there. This is serious. Pay attention, folks. All right, we got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen. To my guest, Lindsay Gibbs of thinkprogress.org, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program or any other, download it at bradblog.com anytime for free. Uh, find us, follow us, and share us on the Facebooks and the Twitters at The Brad Blog. And drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. All right, we'll be back again tomorrow. Until then, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Music